0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jeremiah McDonald. This weekend plunged the U.S. into the reoccurring nightmare of mass shootings. El Paso and Dayton have added themselves to a long line of places that have suffered the shocking and sudden loss of human life. House Representative Veronica Escobar from the 16th District in El Paso has been outspoken about the human cost of what's happened and what this moment means.
1: There were some incredible acts of heroism Uh, among those, a young mother and a young father who used their bodies as a shield to protect their infant child. Both of those beautiful lives are gone. The infant is alive, but is now an orphan. Mm -hmm. There were kids who were having a fundraiser for their soccer team outside of the Walmart, raising money for their team with their parents and their teammates and their coach. And when the gunmen, when the shooter approached, they ran inside to hide in the bakery. One of their mothers told me that the shooter went inside after them and yelled, where are you? Looking for those kids. There are stories about elderly couples who were at the checkout their one story one elderly gentleman paying while his wife waited on a bench while he paid for their groceries as the gunmen ran ran in the wife was um, escorted to the back hurriedly Uh, people were being shuffled to safety her husband didn't make it and she has to live with that survivor's guilt All of this has happened because the Hispanic people have been dehumanized. They have been dehumanized by the president, by his enablers, by other politicians. This is one of the lowest points in American history. And if we don't recognize this as such, we will not have the turning point that we so desperately need as a country.
0: That was Representative Veronica Escobar from El Paso speaking earlier this morning. President Trump also spoke this morning. He offered several suggestions for looking for early warning signs and mental illness in possible shooters. And he spoke about creating and stopping a glorification of violence in the country. And the president made this statement condemning white nationalism.
2: The shooter in El Paso posted a manifesto online Consumed by racist hate. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. These sinister ideologies must be defeated. Hate has no place in America. Hatred warps the mind, ravages the heart, and devours the soul. We have asked the FBI to identify all further resources. They need to investigate and disrupt hate crimes and domestic terrorism, whatever they need.
0: That was President Trump earlier this morning, and now I'm going to speak with Juan Cole. He's a professor of history at the University of Michigan. He's the author of Mohammed, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires, and uh, he's been writing about white nationalism and President Trump on his informed comment blog. Thanks for joining us again, Juan. Good to talk with you.
3: Thanks for having me, Jerome.
0: I wonder if you could um, comment on what you think President Trump is saying there, and uh, that was about the most forthright condemnation of, of white nationalism we've heard from President Trump. Uh, at the same time, and in the same breath, he's also suggesting um, some gun control legislation in swap for immigration reform. Uh, what, what do you think is going on here?
3: I think he's lying. Uh, you know the 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 trump has made his way politically by talking out of both sides of his mouth and uh he he tells whoppers he he lies he's lied thousands and thousands of times uh the fact is that uh you see the real trump i think uh, at at his rallies uh where he feels comfortable he talks about minorities as infestations and uh He lambastes uh, Mexican-Americans as rapists and as the worst people. Mexico wouldn't send us their good people. Uh, So he's dehumanized uh, Hispanic people. And uh, while he's not uh, responsible for the uh, horrible actions of this uh, hate-filled individual, he is spreading an atmosphere in the United States that um uh, that i think contributes to this violence and you know i i've spent a lot of time with uh terrorism uh w- with the middle east and uh uh one of the things we saw with the rise of uh isil in uh iraq and syria in 2014 and after uh was that its leaders were able to provoke uh violence in in places like Paris and uh, small towns in the United States and Bernardino uh, simply by uh, sending out messages, encouraging it, uh, sort of inhabiting the imaginations of uh, persons who uh, felt devalued in life or who were angry uh, and and urging them to hit particular targets. uh, And, um, you know, specialists in, in uh, terrorism called this stochastic terrorism. It, it's not. There's no command and control. There are no cells. There's uh, there's not a line uh, of of command. But uh, by putting this out, and especially in the age of the internet, it's it's very effective in whipping things up. And I have to say, with with great regret and and really tears in my eyes, that the president of the United States is responsible for stochastic white terrorism.
0: I was struck by something that was written by Charles Blow in the New York Times today, and he said that white nationalist terrorists, young and rash, and white nationalist policymakers, older and more methodical, live on parallel planes, both aiming in the same direction, both with the same goal, to maintain and ensure white dominance and white supremacy. Um, that's uh, that is a pretty harsh nugget to
3: swallow. Sure, and I, I think it has to be said forthrightly uh, that the economic elite in the United States, uh, the people at the top of the society with regard to wealth and income, uh, you know, mainly, uh, mainly inhabit the Republican Party, and they have a problem uh, in a democratic society. Uh, they're grabbing more and more of the nation's wealth. They're creating enormous inequality uh, that's accelerating over time. Uh, and uh, as late as, as the Eisenhower era, the top 1% only owned 25% of the nation's privately held wealth. It's now up uh, to 38% going towards 40 Uh, And this inequality uh, is a program of the Republican Party. It's created by tax policy. uh, It's created by industrial policy. uh, It's created by uh, various kinds of uh, subsidies uh, to the wealthy, uh, directed by the U.S. Congress. And their problem is that, you know, 1% in a democratic society is not very much. And in order to get... uh, a a substantial electoral uh, group that would vote for them, uh, give their party money, uh, be active for it. They need other messages. And and I think that the way that inequality and sort of casino capitalism has developed has been such in the past, especially the past 30 years, uh, that that politicians, uh, you can think about Stephen King and Iowa and others have increasingly reached for a constituency of of insecure lower middle class whites.
0: I'm talking with Juan Cole from the University of Michigan. He writes the Informed Comment blog, and we're talking about some of the outcomes of uh, this weekend's shootings and the causes behind it. Uh, today, in Informed Comment, you went over um, kind of some previous material that you have compiled about gun violence in the rest of the world. And um, obviously, you know, I think people have become, are gotten more familiar with the idea that this is the only country that has this problem with guns and um, this level and now it's you know metastasizing with white nationalism and things, but uh, we're it's we've got a really strange problem here.
3: Yeah, by the way, I think it's it's all along been a problem associated with uh, with white nationalism and terrorism. Uh, the Columbine shootings, for instance, were not depicted that way generally in the press, but they were underpinned by by white nationalism, and it, it's it's not something new. Sure. Well, the, the United States is peculiar uh in among industrialized democracies uh in having uh, almost no bar uh, to the ownership of military style weaponry. Uh you know, a, a, an ordinary uh, rifle or a, a, a revolver uh you know is dangerous, but it, it can't do th- this kind of of damage that was done in El Paso. Uh and um uh the 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 idea that ordinary civilians should have military style assault weapons which are semi-automatic they're not automatic they're not machine guns uh but uh, they do allow uh a uh, quick uh repeated fire uh the, the the these these weapons were were often developed for militaries the Glock for instance was developed for the Austrian uh, military and police and the idea uh, that they should just be sold uh, freely into the American public, and you know, if if you buy a gun at a at a at a, a gun show or or f- from another person privately, there's no background check whatsoever, uh, and um, uh, and so we we have a situation in this country where there are as many guns as as there are people. There are 320 million. About 3% of the population owns half of those, which I find scary uh, as, a, as a security issue. And then uh, very large numbers of them are semi-automatic in character. Uh, and, and this is just not true in France, in, in, in Germany, in, in the United Kingdom, in, in Spain, in, in any pure country in Japan. Uh, it's not allowed. Uh, and there's no reason for it to be allowed in the United States either. So we've just decided, uh, as a society, and I think the the big gun lobbies and the National Rifle Association uh, and uh, the uh, many of the elites of the country have decided that we're just going to have to suffer with these mass shootings, because the alternative is to close off a revenue stream uh, worth billions of dollars uh, to four large gun manufacturers.
0: I got to admit, it's hard to wrap your mind around. I think most of us walk around and we don't see people who own lots of guns or we can't imagine what, what member of the public owns lots of guns. Uh, I had a jury duty experience recently where uh, I, the case was about a uh, weapon and the um, prosecutor had an, I, you know, an opportunity to ask all the potential jurors about their gun ownership. And uh two out of the twelve people in the box kind of described themselves as gun collectors, people who had hundreds of guns and I would hmm. conceal carry they had conceal carry they were they were you know they had hundreds of guns in their homes, and I was you know oh my gosh i 'm just sitting here with a random collection of the public, and two of the people i 'm sitting with are have hundreds of guns,
3: yeah, well, those two belong to the three percent which in in a country of 320 million is not an insignificant number of people there you know there's in there's nothing wrong with guns uh and uh people you know can have them uh hunters need them and uh people have them in their homes for self protection the studies don't show it's a good idea because the, the statistically speaking, you're much more likely to be harmed by the gun that you own than you are by some outsider. But if people need that uh, security, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with having guns uh, the, the, or collecting them, actually. But uh, the, the, the problem uh, it, it lies in other directions, which is semi-automatic guns are extremely dangerous. Uh, they're They're military weapons, and there's no reason... For a civilian to have a semi-automatic weapon, it doesn't protect you more than than a revolver or a rifle. Uh, it doesn't let you hunt. I mean, well, I mean, I, I suppose it's it's nice to be able to hunt with a semi-automatic weapon, but it seems awfully unfair to the poor game, uh, and and not very sportsmanlike. So I really think the the, the focus should be on. Uh, not on on gun ownership or or, or the use of guns, uh, the, the 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 stocking of guns. That's all fine. This, the focus should be on gun safety, and there is no safety for society in in, in having millions of semi-automatic weapons uh, freely available.
0: You know, we just heard uh, Representative Veronica Escobar from El Paso talking passionately about knowing um, what is happening in this moment that we are having this dehumanization of people and uh, this metastasizing of violence is happening and we've seen so many of these in the past and given the dynamics that you've talked about about um, income inequality uh, do you think there's any chance of anything different happening this time? Um, obviously, President Trump went through a long list of things this this morning that he thought uh, could happen if there were bipartisan efforts uh Will anything be different
3: no uh the the everything has to go through mitch McConnell at the, at the uh, at the Senate, and nothing will go through. McConnell is in the back pocket of the National Rifle Association. Uh, Frankly, there seems to be some sort of connection between the NRA and a a Russian uh, uh, covert operation to divide and occupy American society with these things. Uh, And uh, McConnell, uh, we're now calling him Moscow Mitch, uh, also seems to be involved with the Russia lobby. Uh, Explain Uh, what
0: you mean by that. That's That's a pretty wild thing.
3: Yeah, well, it, it it sounds on the surface like it's wild, but uh, th- there's a lot of evidence for it. Uh, McConnell, uh, first of all, the, the the Russia side of it is that uh, the, the the Russians clearly attempted to infiltrate the National Rifle Association uh, in 2016. They sent a spy uh, to do so, uh, and has been convicted of of the attempt. Uh, uh, moreover, the 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 Saint Petersburg troll farms clearly uh, uh, attempted to whip up white nationalist sentiment, pro-gun sentiment, uh, and, and you know some of their Facebook pages had a million uh, subscribers, uh, and then uh, the, the troll farms would actually uh, whip up a minority of Black Lives Matter, for instance, pages and try to set them against one another. Uh, and this is all very well documented. Uh, so the, the, the fact that we have this unsafe and secure situation with these, uh, with these semi-automatic weapons freely available and the intersection of those weapons with, with white nationalism is actually being used uh, by our uh, rivals uh, to divide and weaken us. Uh, McConnell uh is is close to the uh to the NRA and gets a lot of money from it and has run interference for uh, opposing any kind of gun legislation uh but his uh, his ex-aides uh have been found to have connived at getting a 200 million dollar investment in uh, in his state um from uh, a Russian oligarch who had been, until recently, uh, uh, listed uh, and, and sanctioned by the U.S. government. Uh, so there's something going on there. Uh, but, you know, it's not, it's not just a matter of foreign interference. Uh, Marco Rubio got $3 million for, from the NRA and has been AWOL, uh, even though he, he's uh, from, from the Latino community. Uh, hasn't had anything to say about El Paso because he has this conflict of interest. Uh, so, there, you know, it, it goes back uh, to all kinds of pathologies in, the, in, in U.S. society. Uh, the, the, the inability to move on guns because of the power of the gun lobby and the way in which our politicians are bought and paid for is a long-standing problem. The thing that alarms me about El Paso, however, is that it's a race war and uh and and that hasn't necessarily been a big part of these mass shootings which have often been fairly random uh and uh you uh, you saw the one in Dayton which probably had no ideological uh, significance but um uh but but the prospect of of racially motivated racially targeted mass shootings uh really could throw this country into enormous turmoil And the president, uh, in in his rallies, regardless of what he says off of the teleprompter, is whipping this kind of sentiment up in the country.
0: Juan Cole is professor of history at the University of Michigan. He's author most recently of Muhammad, Prophet of Peace, Amid the Clash of Empires. Thanks for joining us and talking about white nationalism and gun violence in the U.S. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Juan. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about gun violence as an epidemic. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about the U.S. and its problem with mass shootings today. Let's continue and talk about a public health way to approach gun violence. With me is David Hemenway. He is a professor of health policy at Harvard's uh, School of Public Health. His book, Private Guns, Public Health, was first released in 2004. A new edition was released in 2017. We've talked with him previously about Australia and uh, their policies around uh, gun control and gun buybacks. Thanks for joining us, David Hemingway. Thank you. I wonder if you could expand a little on what race and guns have meant to each other in U.S. history. We were just talking with Juan Cole, and he was alluding to the long history of of race and guns being a factor in our uh, resulting laws. Um, could Could you talk a little about that? I know you've thought deeply about this.
4: Sure. Well, I thought deeply about guns. I don't know if I'm the expert on race, but uh, my understanding is that a big reason why we had the Second Amendment is to make sure uh, that uh, whites in the South were able to to ensure that slaves were not going to revolt, that they would have... um, Firearms to prevent such a such a thing. The United States a lot of issues in the United States have revolved around race, and I think guns is one of the uh, one of the reasons uh, we passed some of our gun control laws in the United States was uh, during my lifetime was when the Black Panthers started talking about arming themselves. Uh,
0: it, now, how do you see that as? Um... Factoring in with today's environment with Donald Trump and white nationalism. Uh, what is what is, is he doing anything different here?
4: Um, yeah, you know, I, I, again, I'm not an expert on the po- politics, but it does seem that uh, There is a lot of division uh, across uh, that's, that's, that uh, Donald Trump is inflaming uh, Across uh, races in the United States.
0: If you were to try to do something about – I think a lot of people have an idyllic uh, vision of what the United States would be like if it didn't have any guns. And we talked previously about Australia and they had a big mm-hmm. gun buyback program and really got rid of most of their guns. Uh, is something like that feasible in the United States?
4: Uh, I don't. I don't really think so. I mean, we, uh, I, I think we would have been better off uh, in the United States if we never had any guns. But we have lots of guns, and a lot of people love their guns. So I don't think that that is a uh, a possibility in the United States. It would probably be a bad policy. And right now, the way the Second Amendment's been interpreted, it would also be an illegal policy to get rid of most of the, of the guns by uh, in a mandatory way. Uh, we We tried to get rid of uh, alcohol that way, and that didn't work out work out well.
0: Well, what would you suggest what is would be a good first step for the United States?
4: Oh, there's so many uh, steps, uh, and uh, and the public health approach really is a harm reduction approach. There's so many different things uh, that could be done uh, to reduce uh, our gun-related problems uh, in the United States. It's the same. One of the things which in public health we talk about are success stories in other areas, and one of the successes we've had is with automobiles. Uh virtually every automobile crash and uh is due to something that the driver did. If drivers never made mistakes, there'd be hardly any crashes. And if drivers always obeyed the law, there'd be virtually no deaths. Uh the majority of uh motor vehicle deaths in the United States are due to uh misbehavior by Motorists, motorists speeding, uh, motorists driving drunk, motorists texting while they're driving, and so forth. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the only or necessarily the, uh, lo- the main policy should be directed at drivers. There's certainly we should do something about bad drivers, and we try. But what we were also smart enough to do is we did something about the automobile. Uh, We did something about the roads. We did something about the emergency medical system. And so when I was a kid, uh, there were so many more automobile deaths per mile driven than there are now. And there's, there's been a reduction of close to 85 to 90%. And nobody thinks that it's because drivers are better than they were when I was young. It's because the car is safer the roads are safer and better, uh, and uh, the emergency medical system has improved.
0: One of the things I was reading about that you suggested the U.S. do is to make it uh, illegal to research what's going on with gun violence. Uh, there, There are, is a restriction that was put in place in the 90s, and it's hard to really do solid research to get to the place where you're Reducing the automobile crashes in your analogy. Yeah, so so in,
4: in uh, I wrote a book of ten years ago called while we were sleeping It's success stories in injury and violence prevention 64 documented successes and in virtually all of them data and research really mattered uh, One of the big reasons we've had great success in motor vehicles is we knew what was going on We knew what to do because we had good data research. We know what was working and what wasn't working Uh, And in the firearms area, first we don't collect a lot of data we should be collecting. We don't, then some of the data we collect, we don't, we make it inaccessible to researchers. And then finally, uh, we don't provide very much funding for research. Funding for research has been crucial to understanding science uh, in the United States uh, uh, since the beginning of the United States, I think. So what's uh, what's really lacking is a lot of knowledge that could help us uh, live with our guns, because if we're going to have so many guns, we have to figure out ways that we don't have so many people dying.
0: I'm talking with David Hemingway. He is a professor of public health policy at Harvard School of Public Health, and his book is Private Guns, Public Health. It was first released in 2004, redone for 2017. Uh, and I wanted to take a few phone calls today, and the number to do so is 312-923-9239, 312 923-9239 and we'll get your calls and, and talk about uh, things we could do to make the country safer um, you know in that scenario um, what do you how do you address some of the obstacles even to doing something like research obviously Congress has said well we don't even want to do research into uh, gun problems right now and no yeah. number of mass shootings seems to, to change and remove even a simple obstacle like that
4: Right. So what's what's been nice is that some parts of government have stepped up a little. The National Institute of Justice, for example, uh, some foundations have stepped up, uh, which is what the, they, they really should be doing. The Joyce Foundation has always been good about this, but now the Arnold Foundation, the Wellness Foundation was great in California for, for helping to do research and getting good data. Uh, and then now even some states uh, have stepped up. Uh, We have three states now which are funding research, uh, which is an excellent, excellent uh, thing to do.
0: I noticed that um, one of your topics of research was a report on stolen guns, and uh, when you've got so many guns out there, uh, the number of stolen guns really matters. How many guns do we get stolen every year Uh, in the United States?
4: Well. Again, this is an area where we don't know nearly as much as we should about the who, why, what, when, and where. Uh, Our best estimates now are that maybe 350,000 guns a year are stolen in the United States. Uh And this is one easy way where guns get into clearly wrong hands. And so we have to figure out how they're really stolen, what kinds of policies and what kind of programs and what kind of education and so forth would be best to try to reduce this way where guns in the legal market get get into clearly wrong hands.
0: Three hundred and fifty thousand guns might be stolen every year in the United States. That's
4: that's that's uh, one. Of, that's a reasonable estimate. Yes, the, the, the best estimates are probably between two hundred thousand to five hundred thousand.
0: All right. Uh, I mean, uh, do uh, how? I guess we don't know how often these kind of thing things turn up in crimes, but. Um, is it more likely that a stolen gun is is available in crime? I'm,
4: I'm, we're we're pretty sure that's the, that's the case. Most, um, uh, for example, ho- homicide guns uh, when they're traced uh, certainly don't belong to the uh, perpetrator.
0: Um, I wanted to also get into an issue that isn't uh, often talked about when it gets into. Uh, when we get into these mass shooting situations, but is causing a lot more deaths, and that's suicides. Um, It's a gigantic problem that with so many guns out there, there are so many suicides by gun in the United States, and this is a problem that um, other countries don't have. It's just easy access to guns is a huge problem for the loss of life here.
4: Yes. Uh, One of the things we really do know, because there's been all different studies, uh, many, many studies using all different kinds of data, looking at all different ways, is that a gun in the home increases the risk for suicide by something like threefold for everybody in the home. That doesn't mean that, you know, if you have a gun in your home, someone's going to die of suicide, but it means you've increased the risk dramatically, so maybe over a You know, a number of decades, there might be uh, one half of a percent chance that someone in the home will die with a gun. There's one and a half percent. So there's so many people who are dead because there was a gun in the home. If there hadn't been a gun in the home... We know the evidence is very, very strong, that very. it's not that common that people carefully, carefully uh, think about, plan their suicides and how they're going to do it, and with what and what day and whatever. But it's often, it's common that uh, things just get so black and you just see no way out and you decide to commit suicide and you take whatever is readily available. And if it's a gun, the case fatality rate is close to 90%, it means you're going to die. Uh, and if If you take 100 pills, the case fatality rate is maybe 2% or 3%. Physicians will save you. So if we can get people to move from uh, shooting themselves with a gun to uh, just taking pills or doing something else, we probably save that person. And the evidence is overwhelming that uh, these people don't go off and then kill themselves in some other way. Only people have been followed in very serious suicide attempts where they've lived. They've been followed, say, 20 years, and less than 10% ever commit suicide. So you've really saved them. One of the things we've been doing a lot is working with gun advocates, uh, finding common ground with gunners, Uh, trying to reduce suicide. Uh, We've worked with gun shops, getting them involved, and they can do something to help reduce suicide. Uh, We work with gun um, uh, rangers and also now with gun trainers. Gun trainers can do a lot, and they've done in the past. They did very little, but slowly but surely, I believe they're going to start doing more and more because gun suicide is so much more common than gun accidents. How
0: does how does that how does that work? If you work with gun shops or something, does that I don't understand how, how okay. that.
4: So, so, one of the things we're working together on, and as you know, we see them as not the problem, but part of the solution. And one of the things we're working a lot with is is this notion of just as friends, don't let friends drive drunk. Uh, friends don't let someone who's going through a bad patch uh, keep their gun. So if your good friend uh, is uh, just uh, is going through a bad divorce and he's drinking and he's talking crazy, uh, what you should do as a good friend and he should know it's your responsibility is to, quote, babysit and quote his gun for a while till things get better and he gets a new girlfriend and everything is okay. He gets through this bad, bad period. It's like why we have suicide watches in prisons, because for a certain few days or few weeks, somebody is at very high risk of suicide, and after that, the risk goes way down. And so, uh, gun trainers are beginning to understand that uh, one of the things they should be teaching is that if if somebody in your family is going through a bad patch, that get the gun out of the house for a while and you can help save someone who
0: you love. Very interesting. I'm talking with David Hemenway. He is a professor of health policy at Harvard School of Public Health, and his book is Private Guns, Public Health, uh, released re-released in 2017. And we're talking about a public health way to approach gun violence. We'll take a few phone calls after the break. The number is 312-923-9239. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. We're talking about a public health way to approach gun violence with David Hemingway. He is a professor of public health policy at Harvard School of Public Health, and his book is Private Guns Public Health. And um, we wanted to take a few phone calls, and Luke is on the line with us. Luke, you're on WBEZ.
2: Hey, good afternoon.
0: What's your question, Luke?
2: The question I have is whether anyone has proposed or is currently considering a system for, I wouldn't say gun control so much, but something analogous to liability insurance like you have with a motor vehicle. I don't think there's anyone that says that having to pay car insurance necessarily infringes on your rights to own a car, but at the same time it lets some agency provide uh, incentives for getting better at using it, engaging in safe behavior, and uh, things like that
0: interesting question. Uh, David?
4: Uh, certainly a few people have thought about it. It hasn't made its way into the sort of the mainstream uh, 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 media yet, but that's certainly something that have st- uh, you want to think about a lot of that have strict liability. So if if, if your gun gets uh, stolen, that uh, you're somewhat responsible for it, If especially if you didn't secure it well. Uh, there are cap laws uh, in the United States, child access prevention laws that say if a child gets access to your gun uh, and does something with it or gets hurt by it, that you maybe that you you're liable for it. So that is one type of policy, and there's some evidence that that may work a little.
0: Is there any effort? I, I would think I was reading about a lawsuit that uh, targeted manufacturers. Is, is there uh, uh, any effort to get manufacturers um, to be. Able... Yes.
4: Well, there were a lot of lawsuits uh, brought by some of the same people who brought lawsuits against the cigarette manufacturers, and they were all sort of stifled about, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years ago uh, by a. Law which basically made it so it has made it incredibly difficult uh, to sue manufacturers. But there are so many things manufacturers could do uh, in terms of reducing homicide, in terms of reducing suicide, in terms of reducing gun accidents. For example, uh, we've done a lot of studies on accidental gun deaths, and uh, two to four year olds in the United States have a fairly high rate compared to, say, f- uh, five to ten year olds, and two to four year olds shoot themselves uh whereas five to ten year olds are more often shoot by shot by their best friend or their older brother. Uh but these two to four year olds, uh we have child we, we used to have a big problem with uh kids taking too many as finding aspirin pills, taking them and dying. And we really reduced that problem a lot by having childproof aspirin bottles. And we could do the same thing with guns. We can have childproof guns. Uh Wesson of Smith and Wesson fame over a hundred years ago created a childproof gun. And there, what you just had to do is in order to pull the trigger, you had to put a little pressure on the handle, and two-year-olds couldn't figure out how to do that the same way. They can't figure out how to push down on the top of an aspirin bottle before you turn it. Uh, The the common way that children in the United States are are dying uh, in accidental gun deaths is that, uh, some kid finds their dad's semi-automatic pistol, they take out the magazine, they have all the bullets out, so they think the gun's unloaded, uh, and they pull the trigger. And, they, and some, mostly nothing bad happens, but sometimes they point it at their little brother, or they point it at their best friend, and there's a bullet left in the chamber, bang, the gun goes off, uh, and somebody's dead. And it's a tragedy, not only for the, for the victim, but the shooter. His life's changed forever. Uh, and, you know, you can blame the kid, you can blame the parents, you can blame, 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 or you can just solve the problem, which is make it so that every semi-automatic handgun, when you take out the magazine, that the gun will not fire.
0: We're talking about a public health way to approach gun violence with David Hemingway and we're taking a few phone calls at 312-923-9239. Rafat, you're on WBEZ.
5: Good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Sorry. The professor mentioned, gave a very uh, interesting analogy about the cars and the guns. Um, And I think that's not a good analogy because um, guns in the hands of people take down lives indiscriminately, like what happened in the last two shootings. But with cars, it is altogether different. We need cars, we drive, accident. My brother died a car accident. But when somebody goes with a rage and hate to kill, that is, uh, that is, that is not a good analogy. So if you, can, if you could have given another analogy, I would understand. But they, those, those two analogies, I don't agree. Okay. And I'm so sorry what happened to those last two shitting. I am my, myself there's nobody that I know of related to me who died there, but it has shaken me up too.
0: Yeah, I think everybody. Um, what do you think about the the analogy uh, issues she has? Because guns are made to kill people, and cars are made to drive people around.
4: Yes, and and but cars and 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 which is why we really have a need for cars and trucks and so forth, and there's much less need for guns. I and mean, we can see very. You know, highly advanced countries, England, Japan, who basically have no guns and still can manage to survive and do, in terms of violence, uh, especially lethal violence, much better than we do. But you should realize also that cars can kill and do kill. They kill as many uh, people as guns, Uh, and they can be used in mass killings, as we saw, what, a year ago in the United States, where somebody just ran their car into um, a group of people. Uh, they are also, um, you know, deaths are also caused by in both cases clearly uh, illegal, unlawful behavior, uh, which people are using their uh, either their car or their uh, um, gun in a way which is inimical to society, such as driving at ninety miles an hour uh, or shooting into a crowd.
0: David, what did you think of what President Trump had to say today? He listed um, things like video games and uh, being a contributing factor to gun violence and people's mental health. We should intervene more quickly with people who are having mental health issues. He also thought the death penalty would be a deterrent apparently. Um, Do his ideas make sense?
4: Um, they make sense in the in the, in the sense that uh, you want to divert attention from the elephant in the room, which is the guns. Uh, and you know, every, every other developed country, so say twenty nine other high income countries, uh, have figured out a way to not have the problems we have uh, in terms of gun related violence. And uh, they all virtually all have violent video games. They virtually all have. Uh, all the other problems, uh, people with mental health uh, problems, but they don't have our problems. So clearly, just looking at what's worked in every other country, uh, we could do sort of anything along those those lines. You don't have to have no guns but basically as you have in England or Japan but you can have a fair number of guns and reasonable gun laws now that said it's nice if we do something about people's mental health we should be doing that uh, it's not going to have a huge effect on gun probably gun deaths in the United States but it's just something that should be done uh, there's uh, certainly some evidence that uh, children watching violence is not good for them for them in any way and so we should try to maybe figure out ways to have less violent uh, 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 video games uh, and so forth, but this is, doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of uh, really trying to get a handle on the problem. It's it's like going back to the car analogy. It's like saying, well, we're not, you know, it's going to be as when I was a kid when cars had no airbags and no seat belts and no classical steering columns, and we can say it's all the driver's fault. Ninety- percent or more of driver crashes occurred because the driver was doing something wrong and so we can point the finger at the driver but to be effective we have to do lots of other things and one of the easiest things uh, to do the most effective is to do something about the guns
0: let's take another phone call Uh, mason in palatine you're on wbez
2: okay thanks for the call Um, Yeah, you know, watching what happened in El Paso, not to mention uh, everywhere else last couple of years, with the rise of um, uh, concealed carry, that came to my mind in Texas because there was a lot of um, static in the air about, you know, University of Texas and, you know, oh, the professors, you know. Everybody was against it, but the legislation passed and now people walk around with weapons legally. Okay, Um, were there any carrier, you know, um, concealed carry individuals in El Paso at the Walmart when this occurred? And um, if if so, is there any way to find out, you know, how many were there and, and has it really helped to deter these mass killings? and I'll
4: I'll hang up
0: Uh, what do you think about concealed carry as a deterrent
4: yeah well it's it's probably, certainly not much of a deterrent in the mass killings, because um, almost all these mass public shootings, the person is either uh, immediately caught or immediately killed or kills themselves. It's not like people are, you know, are uh, they they have to recognize that this is one of their last acts before uh, they either die or they're in prison forever. So having a the, the the only thing a concealed carry person could possibly do is reduce the number of uh, fatalities, which uh, most public health people think the a lot easier way to do that uh, is to have limits, for example, on magazine capacity and other ways of changing the firearm. Um, there's not. Uh, a lot of good evidence. There's been a good number of studies uh, about concealed carry. The most recent ones seem to indicate that uh, having more people uh, uh, carrying concealed it creates more harm than it's worth. I think if the if the studies really the good studies showed that concealed carry was beneficial to public health, everybody in public health would be for it. The same way if if concealed if the evidence was for indicated that. Um, having uh, an AK-47 in your home improved your public health, improved your private health, uh, and improved the public health. People uh, in public health would be for it, but that's not what the evidence uh, typically shows.
0: Let's try to sneak one more phone call in here. Frank, you're on WBEZ.
2: Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, With the concealed carry uh, in Illinois uh, recently, one of my siblings purchased a gun. And my brother-in-law purchased a gun. And I'm not a statistician, but mathematically speaking, uh, somebody has a bad day. There's a much greater chance of someone uh, hurting someone else, or worse, if they own or possess a gun, which I don't. Uh, I, we're always looking to Congress and often looking to our leadership to, 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 uh, to change these situations. And uh, I think people have to look at themselves a little bit first. Do they really need a handgun? I live in back-of-the-yards, and... I'm Caucasian. Most of my neighbors are uh, Mexican and a lot of African-Americans. Nobody bothers me down there. Um, so I'll hang up and listen.
4: Thank you very much for letting me on.
0: Well, there's Frank with the uh, so, million-dollar question there.
4: So, so the, the evidence is, is pretty is very strong, that at least for the average person, a gun in a home reduces your uh uh, your health uh, it, it increases the likelihood something bad was would happen rather than is is a protection device, so that in any moment in time, you can use your gun you know, as and, and to intimidate your wife to your children can find the gun and and shoot themselves or their friends. Uh, and uh the the possibility of your committing suicide your spouse committing suicide is, is always there and the one potential benefit is that you may be able to use it uh in self-defense if you really need it but even there um the evidence is not very strong that it's of, of, uh that it's very helpful most of the time uh most people i don't know that they don't understand that uh if there were an event that you really needed to use your gun you have to you have seconds to less to make the correct decision your heart's beating like crazy the adrenaline is flowing like crazy and unless you've been trained not just to shoot straight but over and over and over and over practice such situations you may easily make wrong decisions and yeah. shoot uh, you know your your daughter's boyfriend who's just sneaking in you know <laughs>
0: yep.
4: rather than somebody who who really shouldn't be there
0: David Hemingway is professor of public health policy at Harvard School of Public Health his book private guns public health was just re-released in 2017 first published in 2004 thanks a lot for joining us David and talking about a public health way to approach gun violence tomorrow on worldview we're going to talk about the escalating trade tensions with China and the effect it's having on our economy. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.